We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Hello, everyone. This week, we're talking to David Chandler. David is a scientist for 9-11 Truth who's done a lot of work on the physics of the collapse of the three towers. Now, Adam and I have already made a short video explaining why, given our interest is primarily in the geopolitical area, why we've gone in this direction and what we're hoping to achieve and not achieve with it. So I won't go into that here, only to say that in constructing this interview, we attempted to collate all the critical comments about David's work we could find across the internet and then put the best of those to him. I hope we've done an okay job given our limitations in this scientific area and that it's enlightening if not conclusive for people. And that's what we're aiming for really, just to, to move this discussion on. We might do more in this area in the future. So with that in mind, we're happy to receive people's feedback on where it would be productive to take this. Now, before we got into the physics, we wanted to know a bit more about David as a person, as we were aware he had something of a backstory in the anti-war movement, and we asked him about that and how he initially became cynical of the state. Well, I've had a, I had a series of experiences that sort of put me open to this kind of thing. When I was in high school, even, uh, I had to do a book report on some random thing in a social studies class. And I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So I wandered through the library and there was a set of books there that were the kind of, they're all bound exactly the same, you know, a match set. And it looked like they'd never, ever, ever been taken off the shelf. So I just picked one at random and it was about, um, it was a history and it was about Central America. And it was about the, um, well, back at the Spanish-American War and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm the gunboat diplomacy and how we got Panama and talked about Nicaragua. It just really, I mean, it was like not written. This was not a piece of history that was written for high school students. It was all, you know, pablum that was all mushed down and, and so forth. This was sort of like the real deal. And it really shocked me. And that just sort of, that's, I think that's the first time I literally realized, uh, you know, this isn't the type of thing that, I've been taught that we're supposed to be about, that we're, put, we're being bullies in the world. So that was sort of uh, in the backdrop and I've had a couple other experiences like that. But then when I was in um, Southern California in the 80s, um, I was actually a, a part of a, a church group that uh, started taking in refugees as part of the sanctuary movement. And uh, actually what happened was there was a, there was a I don't know how much detail you want, but the, I, there, there was a, a, some refugees that came in and the, 
I went to the pastor and I said, we're not doing anything for these people. They're just sort of sitting there. And what's, what are we supposed to be doing to help them? You know, shouldn't we help them get on their own feet and all that kind of thing? He said, I think you should do that. And sort of, you know, so I got involved like, and so forth. And so that's, so I got personally involved with these people from Central America and recognized, I mean, heard their stories firsthand. The woman that we first took in was incredibly traumatized and you could just see it all over. She gave us her a false name at first and all sorts of things like that. So it was, and she had a, a child while she was in prison. She was never charged with anything. All of the women in her prison were released at one point uh, due to the work of Amnesty International and they immediately started showing up dead because the death squads were out gunning them down. And she got refuge in a church that got her smuggled in up to the US. That family, we eventually got asylum in Canada because the US was routinely just denying all these asylum applications. So that was the kind of experience that I had to calibrate what, what you read in the papers versus uh, seeing directly firsthand what was really going on. So I was in a, in a state where I recognized that uh, the US foreign policy is not what they teach you in high school, you know? So that was my pre precursor there. So when 9-11 happened, it was not like I could, there was no hurdle for me. There's a lot of people who they had to go through a big hurdle to get to where they could accept it. Maybe somebody in the U.S. government did something bad, but I didn't have that kind of hurdle because I'd had these preliminary experiences like that. So yeah. I was just more looking at it objectively. I was, uh, I was very skeptical of some of the early stuff I heard. And the first time I heard that people thought that they would use explosives and all that, my question was, how do they know? Or what's the evidence? And so forth. And then I saw these squibs and so forth on some videos. But then I thought, how do we know that's not, that stuff's not photoshopped? And I started looking for confirming videos and I sort of realized they're all over the place, that they're not, you know, there's all kinds of video evidence that this is actually real. And so all that kind of thing just started to grow on me. And then, but anyway, so the point where I finally engaged is I, I started giving some uh, talks to some local groups uh, like Unitarian Church and various groups like that that were open to this. And uh, just based on my own mostly internet research and so forth. But then I got an opportunity to give a, a talk at a physics conference. It was the uh, American Association of Physics Teachers and there was a group that met at Occidental College in Southern California every year for physics day. And I asked the guy, could I give a talk on this? And and he said, sure. And so I, I had a few months to prepare. So I thought, well, this is a different kind of audience. I ought to have something more substantive. So I got in and started trying to uh, take some measurements so that I could, you know, what can you know based on what you see in these videos? And, uh, and that's where I realized uh, how fast these buildings came down and how fast stuff was shooting out the sides. I just based, I had a tool which at that time was sort of primitive kind of a tool called physics toolkit. And I have a better one that I've used since then, but uh, it could actually, you could put markers on videos and track them. 
and uh, take measurements that way. And so I came up with a whole set of these measurements that I presented to this group and I, I put them on YouTube and that's where uh, somebody from AE uh, contacted me and invited me onto their team at that point because they saw okay. the stuff I put up there. Okay, maybe I can ask you to just go over that in, in a bit more detail. Just uh, firstly, just I, I, I didn't know actually that part of your biography that you'd read about um, the Spanish-American War and the invasion of the Philippines. And what's interesting about that is mm -hmm. that it all starts with the explosion of the USS Maine, right? So you have this very dodgy um, incident, which was clearly, we can say the very least, lied about, um, yeah. that kicks off a war. And that, interestingly, is one of the things when I was looking for historical context for 9-11, that's like an incident. Oh, yeah, you have like, you have a, a, a government that wants to go, embark on foreign wars, but it can't get the people on side, and then there's an incident, and the incident is not as it is first presented with the media that's ready to go. So I think it's an interesting parallel. Um, what, what I'd like to ask there from you, okay, so when you see incidents like this happen, it's not hard for you to um, see the criminal nature of the US government, say, because of your experience. Um, but as a physicist, it's not the case that you just looked at the towers coming down, and went, oh, no way, like moving through the path of most resistance, absolutely impossible. There was a journey for you to get from that initial seeing um, to being convinced. And I wonder, uh, mm -hmm. you go back and forth a lot in your own mind um, mm -hmm. uh, about the, you know, thinking, oh, it can't be, but this is impossible and so on. And I also wonder, um, do you recall when you saw Building 7 collapse for the first time? Because I, I don't actually recall when I saw that for the first mm -hmm. time. And people were already talking about it a lot by the time I did. Um, so. But was Building 7 kind of immediately obvious to you that there's something fishy about this? Yeah. Okay, let me back up a little bit in that on the day of 9-11, I was, I, I was teaching, I, I got up, I had my computer on, and I saw the smoke coming out of the towers, and I called my wife and said, I better turn on the TV, it looks like it's going to be a big news day. And so, and I went to school, and the first comment I made to a like-minded teacher there was, well, looks like the chickens have come home to roost. So that was my only, that was my original response. During the day, a lot of teachers had the television sets on all day. And so, so I particular, I didn't have the inclination to do that because I figured, well, whatever happened, we're going to know about it in more detail later. And this is the type of thing they're just going to cycle infinitely, which is what they did. But uh, so I didn't have the TV on, but this kid comes, comes in the hallway and says, a building fell down. And then a few minutes later, the other building fell down. And it was like, no way, how can that be? So that was my initial, initial response was that, how do you have steel frame buildings collapse due to having a hole poked in them? And so that didn't make any sense to me. So I was glued to the television set and I heard fairly early on that there was going to be a you know, program on Nova that was supposed to explain how the towers came down. So I was very intrigued, waiting to see this Nova program, which we now know is total bullshit. I don't know if I, what your audience is here. Okay. That's but anyway, yeah. the, but at the time, that was like, oh, I mean, I was, I was very curious about how this could happen. And so... I was just taking it all in. And I didn't particularly come at it from a, a critical point of view, other than I was just uh, trying to understand it a little bit. 
but I didn't really get involved in uh, the whole issue. I, I think I was aware at some point I heard something where Stephen Jones had a little TV blip about him. And it wasn't very, it was just maybe a 10 second little thing on a news program. And then I heard later about David Ray Griffin and uh, the, the claims that it was explosives and this type of thing. But um, none of that really, I mean, I just sort of filed that away. But then my sister went to a, a conference. Um, she lived in Santa Barbara and I don't know what the connections are, but uh, she's a friend of David Ray Griffin's wife and so forth. So, but uh, she, she went to this conference and came back with a video and some books and said, you got to look into this. And so I hadn't uh, really dug into it. But when I watched the videos, I was looking at how the, the North Tower was so explosive and how it went sideways. And the first thing I did, I literally, by freeze framing the video, I was able to measure the, uh, a big chunk that went all the way across the street and looked like it hit a building across the street. But I think it actually went behind the building. But uh, I took that uh, projectile and I was, used, I was able to use that to estimate that it was moving horizontally at about 60 miles an hour, which is like, whoa. I mean, I don't know if that proves anything, but it surely is suggestive that something very strange is happening, that this big chunk of stuff is going to go 60 miles an hour horizontally. So that was where I started digging my teeth in. I discovered Jim Hoffman's website and uh, went from there. So I don't know how much I've answered your question or wandered off, but no, I think, I think track. pretty thoroughly, I think that's an enlightening account. Adam, do you have any, anything at this point? No, I'm not, not, not yet. Okay. Well, um, maybe we'll move into some of the physics questions then that I, I've been looking at. We've been talking about Adam and I apologize to the audience for the, uh, the limit of the question as, Technology. We've, we've done our best of this, but we, we are principally coming from the, the geopolitical area when we looked at 9-11. Um, it's probably a stretch to say I'm coming from any area, but Adam's been doing all this research over the years in the geopolitics. And yet there's this other area, of course, that just can't be ignored. Um, so that's why we wanted to have this conversation. Um, what we find, I suppose, from not having all like that much physics knowledge beyond my fairly basic high school education is that it gets kind of deadlocked okay because you have physicist a saying one thing physicist b saying another and we look at it well yeah, i don't really know so i suppose Can I comment on that yeah please do no, you have physicists saying one thing and you have total bs coming from the other side and it's just that you don't know how to filter it out exactly well that that i mean it's it's absolutely clear anyone could say that one side is BS, right? Because both sides are saying, oh, this, that, that's what both sides are saying, that the other side is BS. But that's exactly what we lack, like the, the ability to filter. So I think in doing this, um, we're, we're trying to find a way not just, you know, can, if I devoted my life to getting a physics degree, could I figure this stuff out? But how can the average person putting in a reasonable amount of time feel like they're making headway in, in understanding this? Um, so any, any comments on that, David? But there's a few themes that seem to come up repeatedly, okay? Um, like one of the core 
digressions or divergences I find in, in the two camps is whether the towers one and two fell onto the supports, the central beams beneath them, or whether they fell off the beams. And when I look at the videos and try and visualize it both ways, um, in my own mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know, actually. Yeah, if it did fall off the beams, you've got that weight. Apparently, it's about the, the top section of the North Tower is the equivalent of the Titanic or something. And if it falls onto the floor and not onto the main supporting beams, I can see that the floor wouldn't have enough strength in it to support that weight. And the next floor is not going to, and the next floor. So, so when I look at it, it's like, yeah, that, that's plausible to me. And then also what David Chandler and... Tony Sambotti is saying if it fell onto the central pillars, it can't compress them. It can't. So that makes sense from that perspective. So, and that's one of the uh, the critiques that we've come across again and again. So I think you know what I'm talking about. I've got you. I've sort of bumbled my way into the ballpark of the question. So maybe you could pick it up from there. Let me back it up and give you some background on this. So I know exactly where that question's coming from. And so don't you know? Yeah. So all right. Um, the whole analysis of how the tower came down, uh, how, you have to trace it back to Byzant, uh, Zdenek Byzant, or however you say his name. It sounds like an Eastern European name of some sort. And I don't claim to know how to present, pronounce it. But anyway, um, he's a civil engineering professor at Northwestern University. He came out with this analysis of how the tower came down naturally. Uh, and he came out with this literally, I think it's one or two days, like two days after 9-11. And he submitted it for publication. It got published later in 2001 or the beginning of 2002. And then he's done a few revisions on that. But he basically has this simplistic model that has all kinds of problems with it. But it had the top section of, I mean, it's just a very, it's a one-dimensional model. In other words, he's not taking the beams or girders or anything like that into account. And he has the top section coming down, crushing down the bottom section. And the top section he shows coming all the way down, crushing the top, crushing the bottom section all the way to the rubble pile before it crushes itself. Okay. So you have the crush down, I mean, crush down followed by crush up is the way, that's his words. Okay. So uh, NIST wanted to, apparently, I wanted to avoid any analysis of the actual fall of the building because it's a huge rat's nest and they were going to get into all kinds of trouble if they tried to uh you know try to make that go away and so rather than engage in it they basically just accepted Byzantine analysis as though it was gospel and it's like it's just full of holes like you have all right let me answer your specific question so your specific question if you start, all right, all right, I got to, okay, I'm going to back up again. Mm -hmm. I did a response to Byzant's analysis. Uh, the, I used his model, and it's where I have the top block and the bottom block, and I'm just treating them grad, as blocks the same way he did. And I'm, I'm showing that if you have the top block, and if you add in the piece of data that he totally ignores, the top block accelerates downward the entire time it's visible. There's a constantly downward acceleration the whole time. Now, I pondered that, I measured it, and it's not free fall, okay? But it's downward acceleration. It turns out it's two thirds of free fall. And 
I just sort of tumbled that around in my brain. And I thought, then I said, so what's, what are the implications of accelerating downward at something less than freefall? And I did a little analysis of that, which is a standard thing you do in a physics analysis. It's called doing a free body diagram. And so if you have the block and you figure, okay, if it's accelerating downward, you have an upward and a downward force. If it's accelerating downward, the downward force has to be stronger because it has to accelerate in the direction of the net force. I don't know if you can understand that so far. I'm I hanging on. I want to finish my argument here, but am I too far off track yet? I, I so think I've got forces to produce accelerations. Yep. Excuse me. I missed what you said. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging on. I have some questions in a minute. That's fine. Okay. Doing okay so far. Well, let me finish this whole yep. statement then. You have two basic kinds of forces, one down due to gravity, one up due to resistance from the bottom section of the building. And the fact that it's accelerating downward is key because that tells you that the downward force due to gravity is stronger than the upward force. Otherwise, it wouldn't accelerate downward, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying the resistive force is less than the weight of the building, the weight of the top section of the building, okay? Because it has to be less than the gravitational force, and the gravitational force is that thing's weight, all right? So therefore, it's not, you know, one of the things uh, Dave Thomas says all the time, well, there's gonna be this dynamic load. If something is falling, you get this extra force. That's what's gonna crush the columns. But it's not there. There is no dynamic load because if there's a dynamic load, you're exerting a greater force than the weight of, of uh, the top section. If you take a hammer and hit a nail, how come the nail goes into the wood? If you just take the hammerhead and set it on the nail, it's not going anywhere. In order to drive the nail, you have to get it moving, and when it hits the nail, it's taking the momentum that it had when you brought the hammer down, and it's converting that momentum into this excess force, which is what he's talking about as a dynamic load, all right? And so if you have a dynamic load, you have to be giving up momentum in order to gain this excess force, okay? But there is no excess force because it's accelerating downward. So what you're saying is you should see a jolt and then a fall That's and a right. jolt it's, if it was yeah. crushing the building. Okay. Yeah, if you have, if you actually, I have videos of this. If you take a hammer and you hit a nail, the hammerhead stops. In fact, that's mm. why you have to hit it repeatedly, right? And I have another little video I put in some of my stuff. I actually uh, found a video, a nice video clip of a pile driver because they talk about the top section acting like a pile driver. Well, how does a pile driver act? That goes thump, thump. Thump, and they're driving this big thing into the ground, right? That's what piling is like for piers and all that, all right? And so the thing is that it's taking momentum by dropping this thing, giving it speed, mass going at a certain speed, mass times velocity, that gives you momentum. And by hitting it, you're giving up that momentum. You're transferring that momentum into something called an impulse, which is force times time. So anyway, so you're transferring momentum into providing this excess force, okay? But if you don't give up any momentum, 
there's no excess force. And if you look at the tower, how would, it, how would you see if it's giving up momentum? It would be slowing down. Right. You know, in order to give up momentum, you would see it slowing down. But it never slows down. It's accelerating downward the entire time. It never gives up its velocity. So it's never giving up any momentum. So it's not producing an excess force. It's not crushing anything. Okay. And that is proof right there that it's uh, not destroying the building. It's falling into a building that's been pre-pulverized. So you've enabled this thing to accelerate down into the rubble because you've knocked out the stuff under it by other means. That's the simple okay. physics of it. A couple of um, counterpoints I'll put as well as I can okay. to that. The one criticism I heard was that the frame rate on David Chandler's camera isn't high enough. Okay. And You're talking to Dave Thomas. Missing... Hi, Dave. You're out there. I'm talking to you. All right, go ahead. He's, um, he's missing the jolts. He's not, and actually, the real graph would, wouldn't look like this straight line of acceleration. It would look like jolt, 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 jolt yeah. all the way. Can I talk and about that? Can I, can I, I'll, I'll, I'll make, oh, I'll put ahead. a full question in, right? And the, the building is falling around the central spire, and that's why you see, um, I think it's on the North Tower, you see at the end, there's still a large section of the spire left that then falls over. So the floors themselves aren't putting up any substantial resistance, so you're only seeing this little bit of deceleration each time. Please go ahead. You're not seeing any deceleration. Anyway, let me, let me comment. Um, okay, there's a couple of things. All right, I lost my track a little bit. Um, the micro jolts, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things Dave Thomas is trying to say is that I'm looking at the average decelerate, I mean, the average motion of the building. I'm not looking at little millisecond by millisecond, all right? Mm -hmm. Picture this. The, the floor is an acre. You have an, a floor that's an acre in size, and you're expecting me to believe that that whole thing is going to somehow, in some kind of a coherent, coordinated manner, have these kinds of motions that are resolvable down to the millisecond. This is going to be, this is like a whole huge pile of stuff coming down, and you're not, and you're telling me that it's basically alternating between very large forces for instantaneous little moments interspersed with free fall in between. That's what Dave Thomas is trying to present. It's ludicrous. Okay, so what you're actually measuring is the bulk behavior of the building. So now I'm not arguing it on the basis of looking at the strengths of the individual columns and girders and stuff like that. Tony Zambodi and a couple of these other guys hmm. have done some analysis that approaches it at that level. I'm basically, that whole argument that I was presenting, I'm actually adopting Byzant's model in order to show how Byzant's model is flawed. And then they're critiquing me for adopting Byzant's model. I mean, that's sort of weird. So I I'm, I'm recognize it's a limited model. It's a one-dimensional thing. I'm just treating it like a block and showing that if you take Byzant's model and you account for the fact that it is in fact accelerating downward, that you have a big problem. Now, 
So the micro jolt thing is, I mean, Tony Zambodi did an analysis of that micro jolt thing on another scale. And so I refer you, I have links to a number of these articles in my website. Let me put that out there, 911speakout.org. And if you go over to the tab in the menu that has articles and links, uh, you'll find some of these other articles. And I have, just do a search there on Tony Zambodi and you'll see the articles that he's written. So my work and his work, I feel, are sort of complementary. Mm -hmm. In fact, his work on the missing Joel is almost exactly the same as my work, except we came at it from different ends and not in the middle. Okay, so I sort of developed mine independently of his, but when I finished, I realized, oh, I could explain my thing by looking at his thing, all right? So those uh, go very hand in hand. But he's also done a lot of actual like looking at the loads and the way the columns buckle and all those kinds of issues, which is not like a one-dimensional model anymore, but he's also done that. And um, in fact, their conclusion was that if you actually got the, the, the building somehow started the way NIST claims it did, the, the collapse would be arrested within one floor. So that's the, their conclusions. But that's a more, that's a more uh, engineering model approach to the way the, the structure would have responded, okay? So I really recommend if anybody, if any of your listeners have science and engineering background, which I'm just, not everybody does, but you know, in this population, there's a whole bunch of people who do. And I would re recommend that they, I'm basically giving you the, the overview picture and Tony's looking at the micro view picture. I'm gonna come back to one of the other things you're saying though, besides this whole micro jolt idea, which doesn't make, it's not even plausible on the surface. But the other thing is about the columns, whether they collide. So in other words, if you wanna take the, the one-dimensional model of two blocks hitting each other, which is what Bazant started with and then what I am using, and if you wanna then get from there into, here's individual columns and how is this gonna happen, the problem Bazant was dealing with is the, the pancaking of floors question that they originally put out as the explanation, it doesn't hold water because the, the columns in the center of the building are like a building within a building. They're very solid and substantial. And if you basically had the floors pancaking down, you'd see the central column left over afterwards, all right? Uh, there's a few straggler columns, but that's not the same thing. We have a massive central core building within a building, which had to be destroyed in order for it to come down the way we saw. And in order for that to happen, you have to stress the columns. You have to make them buckle. You have to somehow crush them, okay? And so Bazant was correctly trying to say, we need to get those columns crushed. And his model was trying to explain how that could happen. And okay, so now they come back and say, well, maybe it couldn't happen because of the alignment. Okay, so we're basically defending our use of Bazant's model and refuting Bazant. That's what's going on here. But, if, but look at, so one thing is that if you actually look at the videos, uh, somebody is saying, well, it tips, it's, it's tilted and all that. Well, the, the major, there's about a tilt within one to two degrees initially. And then it's not until it's crushed down a ways that the tilt 
goes as far as like eight degrees or something. Uh, if you take some videos as seen from the east side and you look at the, at the mast on the top of the North Tower, it starts downward and then only gradually starts to tip. And so the views that are seen from the north, it's tipping away from us. And so it's not easy to see that it's tipping at all. But if you see it from the east, you can see there is some tipping. So it's tipping southward. And, uh, but it's very small initially. So when the, when the collapse was starting, there's none of this uh, tilting going on very noticeably. And uh, Tony rightly says, no, they're not going to be missing each other. But let's pretend they did. All right. If you, you have this central core packet of columns, like 47 columns, that are very heavily braced. Okay. There's sort of a rectangular bracing that holds them together as a unit. And if you have the two sections, say that you rotate it or something so that all these columns miss and they go down, all of that bracing is going to impact each other. So it's not, I'm not talking about the floors. The bracing in the central core column structure is going to interact and you're going to be tearing up the bracing of both the underlying structure and the falling structure simultaneously. So by the time you've torn up the bracing for 12 floors below it, the 12 floors above it are going to be gone. And so all, what you all have at that point is just this loose collection of material and you don't have a coherent block at all at that point, just from that argument alone. So if you had the columns missing each other, um, you, don't, you basically have the destruction of the falling block uh, right there. <clears throat> There's more okay, to be said. That, well, that, question. That, that's a very enlightening answer. Thank you. And it, you know, it's sort of exactly in line with where I was going in the questioning. Um, perhaps yeah, you could help us understand like this. I mean, actually my sort of first memory of you was seeing you on the, um, the long architects and engineers documentary and being struck by what you were saying about uh, the, the top section of the towers couldn't crush that below because um, forces are equal and opposite. So the floor above crushes the floor beneath and so on and so on until it's eradicated itself. Could you help us understand how uh, a physicist might look at the, the physics of a collapsing object when it's crushed and what damage that can then do, okay? Because, um, for example, um, one video that I've seen circled around is that of a digger bucket lifting up about four ton of water and dropping it on a car and the car is completely crushed, okay? Because, but water's not connected at any point, but it's together enough, it's delivering, I suppose it's delivering enough momentum or kinetic energy in a single instance that whacks to, to do that, right? And you know, I was saying to Adam before we started, you know, if I was going to have a thousand apples dropped on my head, I'd prefer that they were loose than in a crate. But I imagine that having a thousand apples dropped on one's head is not like having one apple dropped on at 10 second intervals, because some apples are going to be hitting others and it's going to transfer more momentum than, than if they were dropped individually. So how do you look at that from a physics point and do sort of calculate what a broken up falling mass um, would be able to do to a structure beneath it. Right. Okay. All right. Look at that instance of dumping. The, I looked at that video you sent me. Mm -hmm. It shows like a, a, a lift bucket and they dump this water as a 
something. I don't know how many tons did you say? I a think bunch of tons four. of water. Huh? I think it was four tons. Okay, four tons of water, and they dump it on a car, and it crushes the car. Okay, so number one, the built the structure of the building is not like the street metal structure of a car. Mm. First of all, that's just one little point. You get that out of the way. But the other point is this: is that that water is acting. All right, what creates the force? Here comes some physics. The force that you get is equal to the rate of change of momentum. So if you have a bunch of momentum, see how much momentum is getting stopped, okay? So if you have falling water, it has momentum. If it hits a plate, it no longer has momentum, right? Mm -hmm. So you've given up the momentum. And so the rate at which you're giving up momentum is a measure of how much force. And there's another example of this. I was actually, I'm writing a physics course, by the way, as we speak for homeschoolers. So if anybody wants to educate themselves in, in physics, a self-taught course, write to me. It won't be ready till next fall, but uh, uh, you, you yourself can learn some physics. Okay. Okay. But the point is, I was using this as an example. If you take a fire hose, all right, you get a certain, you has a flow of water, but it's a certain amount of mass per second that comes out of that hose. And uh, then it, say it hits a plate, all right? And that fire hose hitting the plate, it's going from having momentum to no momentum, all right? And so the rate of change, how much momentum is given up per second, that rate of change of momentum is gonna be equal to the force that's delivered on the plate. So you can calculate, here's a fire hose hitting a plate, how much force, how many pounds of force are gonna be felt there by the plate? And I used this as an example, in Birmingham during the civil rights uh, era, they used fire hoses on these protesters. And you see protesters being knocked down, being pushed down the street. There's one instance where the, a girl is thrown over a car. I mean, this is a lot of force being delivered by a fire hose. So it's because the water that's coming out, no, it's not coherent with bolts and nuts and bolted together, it's, but it's all acting so that overall, there's a certain amount of momentum that's being dissipated and it's being converted into this force. And so the force that these people are feeling is because of the momentum of all that water hitting them. If you've ever been knocked over by a, if you go in, in the surf and here's a wave, you weren't looking and here's this wave and it hits you, it re you really feel that lots of force delivered by a, a wave, okay? Okay, anyway, the point though is, just because it's water, you can look at how much momentum is, uh, the rate of change of momentum is gonna equal the force. Now, if you have a crate of apples, all of that momentum is gonna be more or less simultaneous within the time it takes for that crate to break up, right? Uh, and so it's a very short period of time. So the rate of change of momentum is very high, because the rate is how much momentum divided by how much time. And so if you have it happening very quickly, it's a large force. If you pour a bunch of apples, you're spreading something that was a fraction of a second of impact into several seconds of impact. And therefore the force is proportionately reduced. The rate of change of the rate of delivery of the momentum has been reduced because you spread it out over time. 
And so a bunch of loose material is not going to deliver the same force as though you have it all bundled up coherently, all right? So a coherent force will deliver a stronger, a coherent impact will deliver a stronger force than um, the rain coming down, all right? Rain coming down has never crushed my car, all right? But boom, take all of that uh, water delivered at once, yeah, it could, because lots of momentum was delivered simultaneously. So uh, how do we get back to the, the towers? understandable to your non-physics mind at this point. I'm totally with you on that. How do we relate it to the tower coming down in assessing okay. whether the after it, it's happened, it okay. still has enough energy? Okay, don't use energy and momentum in the same breath, please. Right. <laughs> okay, we can talk about the differences. Okay. Did any, I'm being the teacher here. Okay. Um, in the case of um, uh, the argument that's flying back and forth here, is they're saying, oh, well, you know, the, we're saying that if you basically break up the top section, it can't continue to crush the bottom. Because now you have a bunch of loose material, right? Whereas if you had a top block that you're envisioning as being a coherent block, yeah, you can envision that doing some crushing if you have it moving fast enough and so forth, all right? And so the fact that you break it up the top section, you're turning a crate of apples into individual apples. And so you're going a bunch of impacts that take time rather than boom, where everything is working together and therefore the rate at which the, the momentum is being delivered is tremendously reduced. So yeah, loose material can't do the same job of crushing. You need to crush those columns to be able to destroy the building. That was the thing Bazant was trying to wave his hands and tried to do. You can't crush the columns unless you have this coherent force crushing the columns and by the way, it's going to decelerate the top section as it does it. So it, it doesn't work. His model doesn't work, but uh, you definitely can't do it with a bunch of loose debris. And so they're trying to say, well, it doesn't matter if it's together or not. It still has weight. It's still going to crush it. Well, no, it doesn't because it was the rate at which, you know. It, yep. Why is a bowling ball falling on your foot? gonna hurt more than dumping a, dumping a bunch of marbles on your foot. T totally get it, yeah. You got the picture? Totally. It's because totally it's a coherent, yeah. all at once, kind of a delivery of all this impact. Okay. Okay. I don't know if there's much more you want to say on physics. At some point, we'd like to- I can talk about physics for whole semesters. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to talk about some of the implications at some point, and Adam will I'm sure come alive again at that point. Of, um, we haven't talked about building seven either, so come back to that. Yeah, to be honest, ready. yeah, like yeah. we just didn't. We, yeah, sure. But um, the reason I haven't brought it up as much is I felt like I didn't get as good a questions to ask you from people on building seven, and I didn't feel like um, the criticisms I had were as strong. Right? Like if I'm going to ask David Chandler a challenging question and something that's going to enlighten me in the audience, I, I didn't have one as good about Building 7, and I didn't feel I understood the arguments of um, people claiming that it was fire-induced collapse as well. 
Um, for example, that the, the internal structure of the building fell down and left the facade in a way that did not reflect that at all, and then that collapsed. Um, or that it was going over G at certain points. It was accelerating faster than gravity because it was being... You've been reading out. the wrong people, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. I, so the, these are the kind of things I came across, but at the end, I didn't feel I understood them well enough to ask like a good, solid question about it. But the, those are the kind of points that... Um, that came up so i i don't have a good shot to throw on building seven i don't know adam you might have something there thrown yeah sure um uh, uh afternoon mr chandler actually uh i actually went to the lawyers committee meeting yesterday uh it was held in manhattan um yep. on Eden street and one of the points that they raised regarding building seven was when they had a german physicist and also a mathematician and i I'm going to be remiss, I don't know his name. Um, he talked about the core columns in World Trade Center 7 being compromised all at once. Um, now, this is always a point for contention between the two camps, the truthers, the bunkers. Um, whether the, all the core columns were, co were composed at once or just a couple of the important columns being composed, uh, but compromised at once. In, in, uh, a video that's been played countless times about the famed late uh, um, demolition expert, Danny Joenko, he explains that a certain part of the columns would need to be compromised in order to afford to uh, be demolished. in Because at first he says that it, this is a pure demolition, um, but he's also told that it was on World Trade Center 7, but he hesitates and says, well, it would have been very hard in other words, it's not impossible, but just improbable under the conditions. Could you explain um, what needs to be compromised for World Trade Center 7? And would it need to be explosives or would it have to have been shaped charges in order to compromise whatever columns needed to be compromised in order to fall straight down? Okay. Um, uh, have you... Have you recognized that uh, Halsey's report, uh, uh, Leroy Halsey uh, from the University of Alaska just came out with his analysis just a few days ago. And I went through and listened to his um, oral um, report about that. And one of the things he talks about there is taking this question of progressive collapse. So that's what NIST is relying on. They're saying, they were trying to find a rationale to say, well, a particular column uh, triggered it. And so that, tr that column then progressively uh, worked, it's the stresses got redistributed and then it caused one after another of these columns to fail. And Halsey with it, what, what Halsey was doing was he was doing what NIST purported to do in creating a, what's called a finite element model where you literally, in a computer, you have the entire structure of the building, every connection and so forth, right? And so all the forces are computed at every moment uh, as this thing progresses. And so you, okay. And what Holsey concluded, and it's in his report, in his um, one hour report, whatever it was, what he concluded was if you have progressive collapse, as the, first as the first columns start to give way, it's gonna cause the whole building to tip over. And he showed, they actually ran their model 
and they actually tried to produce a progressive collapse. And you couldn't get straight down collapse if you'd had a progression of collapses going across the building. That it led to a tipping of the entire building completely unlike what we saw. The only way that they were able to get their model to come straight down is if you uh, symmetrically got these uh, columns blown out across the whole building. Now, uh, there's another question that I was in on the conversation before the report came out. Tony and Leo, Leroy Holsey have been interacting back and forth, and I've, I've been in interaction a little bit with, with Tony. Not as much as I'd like, but I mean, we, but we, we do have these conversations. And he, his, thought, his thought was, you didn't need to blow out all the columns. You just needed to take out the central columns and then over like an eight floor section. And then uh, the outer columns then could uh, be caused to buckle. And then it would be, uh, you know, the, the amount of resistance, once they buckled, the amount of resistance uh, would look very close to being at free fall. And that he thought maybe that would be a mechanism. But what happened is when they actually tried to run that scenario on the computer model, it doesn't work. They had to cut not just the core columns, they had to cut all the columns. So uh, you, you basically have to take out, you know, it free fell. It went in absolute free fall for two and a half seconds, which is over 100 feet of drop which is about eight floors. So you had to have a minimum of eight floors uh, of zero support. Now, you could go floor by floor over the two and a half seconds. In other words, within that two and a half seconds, all those eight floors had to be blown out, but they're not being taken out by the falling chunk of building. They're being taken out independently of what's coming down because it has to clear the way to allow it to come down. If something is in free fall, it can't do any work on anything else. Work is the technical term. It can't transfer energy to anything else or it will uh, lose some of its own velocity. It will slow down. It won't be a free fall. So if it's in free fall, it's not giving up any of its energy for any other purpose. It's not breaking anything. It's not throwing anything around or anything, not pulverizing anything. It's doing nothing but accelerating. And that's what's happening with the top section of building seven is it's in pure acceleration mode for essentially eight floors. So you have to clear the way ahead of time. And that's, uh, and, the, and what Holsey's model showed, which is the advantage of this, you can take a scenario, let's run it and see. And so that's what Holsey was doing. And that's one of the reasons people have complained that how long it's taken for this report to come out. They came out with the basic conclusions about a year ago, but they're trying to actually uh, come up with all these various scenarios and trying to say what actually could have happened that would account for what we, would, what we observe. And so they've been running all of these scenarios on this model before they released the final report. And that's what took time, because the model, there's so many calculations going on, it takes a long time to run each iteration of this model. So um, what their conclusion was, you had to cut everything. You can't do it by just cutting the core columns, and you can't do it by having a progressive collapse. 
So one of the main conclusions is of the Holsey uh, study is there wasn't fire and there wasn't progressive collapse. So those are the two premise, main premises of the NIST analysis. And he's saying no to both of those. May, may I have a follow-up for that? Sure. Now, um, I, I don't know if you're aware, or maybe you are, um, of the 2002 Con, Con Ed uh, civil suit case, where the insurers are, um, were suing the, um, the building engineers for failure to protect, uh, I think it was a, uh, um, a boiler room or something like that, the bottom section. Mm. There, were, there were a couple of fire chiefs that testified. Daniel Negro and Frank Carruthers were mm. just two of the five. Um, they testified that, uh, that the face, what they experienced from inside World Trade Center 7 was that there was a lot of fires on the floors and that there was damage in the back, um, the south of the, the, uh, the, the World Trade Center 7 itself. If the columns had to be compromised, this obviously had to have been done through shape charges, if, let's just say, for sake of argument. Would that be something that um, had to have been missed by the fire department? Because they actually, some of them actually uh, surveyed the floors themselves. But I, what I'm trying to ask here is that if these columns had to be compromised, how could they have missed the, like the columns have been compromised itself? I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. I, I, I don't, I think I'm asking the wrong question. So I, uh, and I don't know the details of that lawsuit you're talking about. So I'm probably not the best one to comment on. Okay. It, all right. Okay. Well, all right. Now let, let me ask a different question in form of this way. What would it, uh, would you say that World Trade Center 7 itself was compromised by shape cutting charges or by explosive demolitions of the, of the cores? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I mean, cutting, I mean, shape charges are explosives. I don't know. I mean, just the whole idea of a shape charge is you're, you're directing the explosion directly into the column. You're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to focus as much energy as possible right onto the column. You just put a bomb beside a column so the, you know, it goes off in all directions. That's not going to be as efficient. So when they're doing demolitions, they try to uh, create the, the geometry of the explosion so that it's going to deliver most of its energy right into the column. Right. So okay. that's the difference there, I think. Right. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a point of contention with, with debunkers that say, well, when you see World Trade Center 7 and like Las Vegas hotels, you actually could see the explosions come out from the sides and you can hear them where you didn't see that with World Trade Center 7. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well. Uh, you did see squibs, and there were loud sounds, but you, it's amazing how thorough a job NIST did at suppressing videos with sound. Uh, there was this, you know, when the when World Trade Center 7, when the initial collapse began, there was, a, there was one video in particular. This guy was going all afternoon. He had his tripod set up, and you could see, and it's looking right, so you can see the uh, the East Penthouse, the block that fell first, right? And you have this going all afternoon, and then, boom, the next frame, it's gone. So it just basically cut out that entire moment when uh, that East Penthouse fell in. And it's just not there. So it's a, it's a series of videos that are pasted together, 
but I'm sure this guy didn't sit around for 10 minutes, you know, whatever. The point is that key evidence is gone. And it turns out that in that moment, just before that in East Penthouse collapsed into the building, there's another video taken from West Street, and which is farther away, and it has a lot of more buildings in between, and there's a muffled sound, but there's a very distinct boom. It's a very sharp onset sound, very low, but it was like boom, like that. And so you can hear that there was this sound just prior to that penthouse falling in. So here's this picture, which is right in line, looking at that, uh, that corner of the building with the penthouse and all that. That section of video is cut or is eliminated, or maybe, oh, the guy was changing his film right then, or whatever it is, all right? So it's gone. And there's all sorts of other videos where the key auditory component is missing. Um, there's a, okay, there's a video that has Amy Goodman in it. You know, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! All right. And if you have a copy of the video that's better than the one I have, send it to me. But what the video shows is you can see the, the building seven just as it's about to fall, but there's no audio in, the video has no audio component until after the building fell. All of a sudden, the audio is back on and you can hear the crowds running around and all that kind of thing. So what happened to the audio? How, how would you have a video camera going along and not capturing that audio? And it's during that time at the beginning of the collapse, there's missing data. Why? I mean, that's so bizarre. And there's, there's very few. Uh, I have a video I put together with the help of some other people. And it was called uh, Sound Evidence of Explosions. If you look on my website and go down, you'll see one with that title. And uh, so the interview between Ashley Banfield and a woman that has a baby there, and they're standing there talking, and just out of nowhere, boom, they both turn their heads and look at Building 7. They, so the video evidence is showing there's a sudden startling sound that causes them to both turn their heads and look at Building 7 but it doesn't seem like a startling sound on the video. So the microphone is not hearing what they're hearing. However, if you mess with the audio and enhance the audio, you can actually pull out and it sounds like boom, 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 boom. There's a whole sequence of little uh, impulsive um, sounds right then. But you have to pull it out. You have to consciously go looking for it to find those sounds. So, to tr and NIST was relying on the lack of evidence of sound uh, that this supposed um, explosion that would start of, uh, was happening as a way to brush aside having to even look at explosives. That was their key uh, rationale for not looking at explosives. There's lots of evidence of explosives, but they were constructing this criteria it had to be a certain loudness to be able to have an explosion that would knock out uh, column 79 in a single blast. Well, who says not column 79 got knocked out in a single blast? Even if their scenario worked, they might have had cutting charges on that thing, and maybe it was thermite or something that worked slowly and just sort of built, you know, burned its way through the column. Might have taken a second or two rather than a 
a microsecond or two, you know? So it's like uh, they're basically trying to avoid having to deal with the evidence. And so I don't know. So that whole issue, well, I have, I have a story to tell actually. Uh, I was working with the AE group uh, prior to when uh, the Building 7 report came up. And uh, during that summer, out of nowhere, I, there was, the, you know, these, these guys sort of, um, I don't know, debunkers that are sort of feeding back uh, emails and all that. This guy put up this thing that just blasted me for all of this, all these claims of explosions and so forth. And, he's, and he, he relied on the sound. And so this was just out of nowhere. So he was saying, oh, ridiculous, ridiculous, you know, it would have been a lot louder. That was the, it was just out of nowhere, that argument got brought up that I had not experienced up to that point. So this is just about a month or so before the Building 7 report came out. And so then out comes the Building 7 report. Sound is the key, you know, it's the keystone of their argument on why they didn't have to look at explosives. So some of these debunkers, you know, they're getting fed this stuff. They're probably like a trial balloon to see how would we respond if we, you know, I and others that were working with AE were some of the ones that would have, uh, you know, if we found a hole in the argument, we might have come up with something. And apparently we were sufficiently silent on the subject that they went ahead and went with it. So that was their argument for, um, being able to ignore, um, you know, the existence of explosives. So anyway, I, I mean, we're dealing with people who are manufacturing arguments based on what they think is going to fly. And it's, it's very frustrating. Uh, you're not dealing with, like in an academic community, you have all kinds of people with all kinds of wild ideas sometimes, but there's sort of a common goal of searching for truth and trying to look at it from different angles. That's not what's going on here. We're having people who are trying to understand what's happening and you're having people that are trying to throw sand in everybody's faces, okay? That's the nature of this discussion. So that's why I'm familiar with some of these. And like, you, you read me an argument, I say, oh, I know where that came from. Yeah, sure. Well, so that's, that's why, is that this is stuff that uh, would not come out of a of an ordinary conversation with somebody who is a fellow truth seeker, you know? I mean, I, there's, there's people, hey, I'm, I'm right now the coordinator for Scientists for 9-11 Truth. And there's some of the people within our own group who have what I would consider pretty wild ideas. But it's not like you're dealing with debunkers. It's like somebody, they're trying to understand these details and they have all these elaborate ways that things might have happened and you talk back and forth about it. And you make progress and sometimes it's slow or whatever, but it's a different kind of a discussion than if you're dealing with a debunker. There's a, there's a lack of um, fundamental a sense of honesty and trust and so forth in this kind of discussion that they're not out to get at the truth. They're out to smear somebody or try to, to Okay, cut an argument for the sake of credibility or whatever. Let's pick up on that thought then, okay? Because okay. the problem for 
like people who aren't knowledgeable about physics looking at this is yeah. I can listen to what you say and it, it makes perfect sense about, okay, yeah, an asymmetrical thing like a fire can't cause a relatively symmetrical collapse of a building. Uh, the top part can't move through the path of most resistance. However, however I put it, like when I look at, listen to yourself, Tony's and body, Richard Gage speaks, I, I, I'm sort of compelled in a way that I do not find other arguments for things like no plane hit the Pentagon or, or you know, insert your conspiracy theory here, compelling. Um, but where I find it hits a deadlock is that although I can say, well, yeah, you know, that, that makes sense to me. As soon as I encounter another physicist with a degree, PhD, whatever, or another engineer of their qualifications saying, no, 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 those guys got it all wrong. It's like this. I'm kind of deadlocked, you know, and I, I can't. And, and well, I suppose what Adam and I have, have attempted to do in doing the geopolitical series is to say, okay, like in that area, um, you can look to reasonably invest like this much time, read this many books, and over this course, like it might be six months, might be a year, but at the end of it, um, you're not going to get knocked about in debates around the geopolitical, geopolitical roots of 9-11. And no one's going to be able to fob you off saying, move along, nothing to see here, the commission report covers it all. And yeah, there might be some minor little things, but they're minor, don't worry about it. Okay, you're going to know like what the real criticisms are and why they're very, very solid indeed. And my question to you would be, what's your kind of sense of optimism that someone starting from scratch could learn enough physics to really feel solid uh, deciding this issue one way or the other? Like, is that realistic? Because I mean, it just off the bat, in my imagination, I imagine that some areas are more accessible than others. Like to me, I might be wrong about this, but just judgment call, I would say not like deciding on things like nanothermite would require more expert knowledge than the physics of the collapse. Okay. So maybe some areas are more accessible than others, but how, how optimistic are you? Because I think that what we want to go beyond is people just being able to assert things and saying like, I believe there was a collapse, right. And move towards like, um, having a, a justification of that, or, you know, if you believe it was an inside job or a cover up, having a very solid kind of backing and reasons for that. So, you know, what, what's your sense of optimism or pessimism on that point? Okay, there's a certain level in which I don't expect every individual person is going to be able to analyze every individual argument, okay? But when I do my physics analysis, I don't have the common man as my primary focus I'm putting out stuff that I'm hoping that people who are literate in science, engineering, these types of things will understand what I'm saying and will be able to then um, come to their own conclusions and then maybe look into it for themselves and so, so forth. So there is an audience. One of the things that attracted me to AE was early on, uh, the way I first was exposed to it, they were, they were presenting their uh, program to groups of architects and groups of engineers. And I thought that's great because these are people who can listen to what we're saying and understand it and you know, get it. And my sense is that we live in a community context where no one or not everybody has all this expertise 
but somebody in that group does. And so most people have, or many people have uh, people in their community who are scientifically literate and can help them uh, understand what's, the, sift out the good from the bad. Um, the, the thing that has stood in the way of that happening has been um, the, the propaganda effort to stigmatize this entire endeavor has been so incredibly effective. When I talk to uh, physicists, or I, could, I talk to one of my former professors and things like this, um, it's like, I mean, this, this, here's a former professor at Harvey Mudd College, you know, at the time when I experienced music, Cal Poly now, or he's retired probably by now. But I mean, the point was, um, what he came back at me with was popular mechanics. I mean, that was the level at which he was blowing me off. And it was like, there's all of this propaganda effort to just say, oh, there's nothing to see here, like what you're saying. And they have made 9-11 inquiry to be something which is a, it's equivalent to a mental illness, okay? I, in fact, I had a person who I thought would have been open to at least hearing what I had to say, and literally came back to me was, uh, conspiracy thinking is a mental illness. I mean, she said that to my face. She wouldn't, I couldn't get half a sentence out. And she basically came back with that. This was a person who I would have anticipated would be um, at least uh, in tune enough that she could actually listen to uh, an argument, at least to understand my point of view. But no, she wouldn't even hear it. So there is so much of this uh, propaganda that has stigmatized the inquiry that that's standing in the way of us getting our message to people who actually could understand it. Okay, so it's, that, it's a difficult thing. And so I don't have an answer to, am I optimistic? I don't know. It's not changing what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna keep doing my thing regardless of the outcome because what am I gonna do? I'm gonna make my case as strongly and as often and as many different places as I can do it. And why, why am I, here it is all this time after the event and here I am talking to you guys, right? And why am I doing that? Well, that's, I have an insight that I'm not gonna squelch and nobody who's thrown up all this, you know, throwing sand in your face kind of a response, it's transparent to people, I mean, to me. And it's like, no, you don't have an argument. You're just refusing to, uh, to go where the evidence leads. So, um, you know, I can do what I can do and other people are doing their bit and cumulatively, you never know when something breaks through and makes an impression. And you don't know when you're going to be at the front line when there's a breakthrough or if you're just sort of in the rear, um, you know, doing your little bit. Uh, one, you mentioned you started this conversation off with my experience in Nicaragua and El Salvador and down there. I took a trip to Nicaragua with a group from the Claremont Colleges and uh, back in the 80s. And one of the sayings that's a big deal, was a big deal saying down there was revolution is the work of ants, okay? <laughs> so that really 
made an impression on me. Yes. And so, hey, I'm going to carry my little load and do the things I need to do uh, as effectively as I can do it. And I don't really focus on um, is this effective or isn't it. Um, that's for history to determine. But, um, you know, I think there's a, a, I don't know if it's Buddhist or Hindu or whoever else, they talk about, you know, not, um, not being attached to the outcome of your work. Hmm. I think that's probably a Zen thing or a Buddhist thing or somebody, I don't know. One of those uh, Eastern things. Is Sounds very Zen, you know. yes. Yeah, okay, not being attached to the outcome. So uh, that's essentially what I'm saying as well, is that I'm not looking at the strategy of the truth movement because I'm not in a position to orchestrate the strategy. Mm-hmm. I just know when I see bullshit and I call it, and I know when I'm on to something and I uh, present it as effectively as I can. I'm a teacher, and so I tend to explain things, and there's probably a role in me explaining things. So you, one of the questions you asked in some of the preliminary stuff is, do I think that uh, the population is capable of understanding physics or you know, learning enough physics to understand this? Every bit of physics I've used in my analysis is stuff you would encounter in the first semester of a high school physics. Oh, that's very enlightening. Uh, It's interesting, okay, because from the outside looking in, you might think that physicists, when dealing with, if you're saying it's physics from the first semester of high school, uh, will be able to come to a, there will be an overwhelming consensus, right, um, build that, that you wouldn't have a situation where you and your professor could possibly disagree. I could understand if you were disagreeing about interpretations of quantum. No, we weren't disagreeing. He wasn't right. listening to me. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, there we go. We weren't disagreeing. We never got to the point of discussing substance. It was just, uh, I tried to open the conversation, and he, and he sends me back in an email with all of these snippets from debunking sites, and here's popular mechanics, and all that kind of thing. I mean, okay, I'm supposed to take that as an answer to a question I haven't asked, you know? Okay, well, well that kind of brings me on to my Final question, Adam, I, this will be one that um, you want to jump in on, then obviously if you've got anything more yourself. Um, but I was just looking up the name of uh, Dr. Semmelweis today, the, um, the famous doctor who figured out that if, if um, doctors wash their hands between dealing of corpses and delivering babies, the babies had a rather better chance of surviving, and overwhelmingly statistically so, and, um, but was absolutely harangued from pillar to post for it and ended up dying in a a mental asylum um, and part of the, the reason um, his work was rejected was because there was no rationale of how tiny bits of flakes of skin of a corpse could possibly carry an infection over prior to um, uh, who was it Pasteur not Pasteur Talking about germs yeah yeah germ theory um, coming about right so it required a sort of paradigm shift if you like in the way people were viewing the world for this blindingly obvious, utterly proven, statistically validated way of working to come into being. And how that relates to 9-11, what you're saying about your professor there, is even if it's completely obvious that the buildings were brought down deliberately by demolition, not by fire, if people are inhabiting a worldview that does not allow for things like the US government or some other agency to rig skyscrapers with um, with demolition charges, then they're, they're never going to go there, you know. Um, 
even if, you know, until the video comes out of George Bush pushing the plunger down and it all going up, then it, so, and, and, but the thing is, I kind of inhabit that worldview where I don't, if you'd asked me on September 10th, 2001, knowing if I knew everything I knew now and said to me like, well, can, can the, given what you know and studied about the US empire and the history of it and all and starting wars and getting the population involved, false flag operations, could they rig skyscrapers like, and pull off the biggest controlled demolitions ever twice, three times in a day in a covert fashion. I'd say, get out of here. Okay, come on, that's mad, right? Maybe, maybe they put a bomb on the USS Maine. Maybe it was, they got lucky with the coal bunker, okay? They can tell lies to get us like, involved in the Vietnam War or something um, about being shot at when they weren't. Um, they can have the Q80 ambassador's door to come forward and fabricate stuff about going into Iraq. There's all sorts of things they can do that do lead to millions and millions of deaths. But rigging skyscrapers with comma, you know what I mean? Um, and that's an aspect of this that I've not been able to reconcile. And I think it opens up two questions. One is the sort of um, the, the blue collar work involved in this, okay, of who are the guys that go in and, and set these charges. Like, where, where are those guys? And are they Americans? Are they foreigners? And so on. Um, and interestingly, Adam and I were looking at the, uh, the 1978, I believe, retrofit of Citibank in New York just recently. I'd seen a documentary on that years ago, but not connected to 9-11, where um, Citibank was in danger of falling down and it was secretly um, retrofitted after its construction. And that's also in Manhattan. Um, so that, that was interesting. Um, not obviously a one-to-one -one comparison, but a lot of comparison there. But then the other, and maybe more difficult question still, is the white-collar aspect of that. Who, who gives the order, right? So does uh, Dick Cheney returning to the White House, does he have the power to order some military officer to, to do that? Can, can some Israeli demolition team get access and, and rig the buildings? Can, you, you know, does George Tennant at the CIA, he doesn't seem like, he, you know, for all he can do, he doesn't seem like he'd have a, a team of demolition experts to hand to. So, and that's, that's the other part that, although the state itself is this immense, powerful structure, we can't see which individual is sufficiently powerful to order such a thing within it. Now, I'm not, asking you to solve 9-11 for us here, um, David, because it's, I'm asking completely impossible questions that we do not know the answers well, to. You haven't listened to me yet. <laughs> I haven't listened to you. So, no, if you do, I'm not saying don't solve it. Yeah. If you want to solve it, go right ahead. Right? But I'm, I'm sure that you've had a lot of thoughts on these things over the past um, years. So it's just throw in historical context-wise, um, Oklahoma City comes to mind, a lot of uh, suspicion over that one. But that, that's all I can really say about that. So what are your thoughts on everything I've just laid on the table there? Well, have you read Another 19 by Kevin Ryan? Yeah, it was a while ago. I have, I have read it, yeah. Oh, you should reread that. Okay. So you're talking about the white collar end. There's a bunch of people that are, um, I think, sufficiently powerful and sufficiently corrupt to have some role in all of this. And given that it's probably, I mean, I'm sure it's not just one individual pulling all the strings, but there is a, sort of a, a culture that can be developed where this is a, this is a, you know, a trade-off for what the benefits would be down the line, and we're going to go with this, and uh, you know, everybody gets on board and stuff. So I, I think there can be, uh, I mean, look what the mafia does. I mean, here's a bunch of people that get around and do what are generally recognized as bad things, you know? And they basically, it's not like one guy, I mean, there's maybe a mafia don, but there's basically, there's a whole culture of supporting 
this effort that goes on in that. And with, uh, within the, the government, if you take the, the power structures behind uh, the government, there are all kinds of forces where you can get uh, people that share uh, values and goals and things like that. And they just, each one has a little part of the puzzle and so forth, and they can, they can come in. And like you brought up yourself, you know, uh, people say, oh, you couldn't get an American to go in and plant a bomb in the New York, in the, in the World Trade Center or something. Well, we don't know they're Americans. I'm not, I'm not willing to go to pointing my finger at who did it, but uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be Americans. And the other thing is, doesn't have to be a demolition company. So it's not somebody from Controlled Demolition Incorporated. The US military has the best demolition experience in the world. And I'm sure other militaries around the world also do. So there's plenty of expertise. It was military grade explosives that were used if you use thermite. It's not saying that thermite was the only thing that was used by the way. And so that gets thrown back at us a lot. It's just that their thermite leaves a trace that we were able to find. Okay, so it doesn't mean that that's the only thing, but uh, thermite could well have played a role in the demolition process, and the thermite should not have been there. Therefore, it looks like there were things going on, so forth. So, I think people get too simplistic in their, you know, this couldn't happen, therefore, bang, and so forth. It didn't happen. Well, it did happen. It couldn't have been a natural cause thing. You can tell from uh, the physical evidence that it was a demolition. And my one of the sayings I have repeated over and over, and it gets through to some people and not others, is Newton trumps Freud. You know, uh, if the physical evidence says it was a demolition, it doesn't matter who says psychologically who would have done it, who could, have, who could possibly have brought themselves to do such a thing. You're, de you're dealing with psychology there. And if the physical, if the hard physical evidence says this had to have been a demolition, then you need to start working on the psychology side and figure out how they did it. Not saying using the psychology as a rationale to somehow wiggle out of the, of the physics of it. So I think the work that I mean, so I'm basically looking at really, like I said, high school physics stuff. I'm looking at the videos of the buildings coming down, the physics showing how stuff was thrown out, all the various measurements I've made. I did my little bit there. Some of it is pretty darn persuasive all by itself. But then in addition, in addition to that, you have engineers. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of engineers within work with AE who have made contributions to the analysis of what really could have happened at the, the connection by connection kind of a level within these buildings. And then you have, I don't know, it's just like there is, there are so many ways in which this could not possibly have been a natural collapse. Therefore, you have to conclude, here's my line of reasoning. Therefore, you have to conclude it was pre-planned and therefore the hijackers could not have been a surprise attack because if you, as soon as you have one day of pre-planning before of, of putting explosives in the building, 
you had to know that September 11th was going to be the D-Day, so to speak. And so therefore, the hijacker scenario is a cover-up uh, on the day of. And therefore, you have to start looking at who all is involved. You got State Department people getting those hijackers in place. You had the military involved in making sure that uh, you know, things got screwed up enough they weren't going to intercept these things. And they had to let those planes get to their targets. And you had to have uh, the FAA had to be compromised in some way. So you have all of these tentacles going out there. And then you have the orchestrated cover-up afterwards. Somebody had to be in place to be Johnny on the spot and get that steel removed and destroyed. And there's only a few scraps left. Okay, so that was also Giuliani and whoever else, you know, I'm sure had a role to play in all that kind of thing. And, but then you start looking at this. Then you get the, the NIST investigation. You haven't gotten me to talk about the NIST investigation or the NIST report, but you're talking about an incredibly transparently fraudulent report. Okay? There's elements in both reports, but the World Trade Center 7 one in particular, if you just read the two or three pages where they're talking about freefall, it is gobbledygook. It is literally, it does not make sense on any level. It's about three pages of stuff. And if you read the August report, the preliminary one that we commented on, and then the final report, it's, they're asserting contradictory things within those three pages that are, it's just mind-blowingly uh, incompetent to the way it's put together. It, is, it doesn't make sense on any level. So it's like, who is getting, who is inducing this, you know, NIST, which is a highly respected, very competent group of scientists and engineers, who can lean on them and get them to produce such a piece of garbage as a report that's going to sully their name? Well, they're in the commerce, they're under the commerce department, which is the executive branch. And so that leads, that makes the trail go right up to the White House steps. So you have connections there just by saying that there was free fall. Therefore, it wasn't, you know, to say there's free fall. Therefore, it was not natural. Therefore, there was some element of pre-knowledge, pre-planning, collaboration. And therefore, there's this whole chain that I've just laid out that leads to high places, including the White House. So that's my argument on the socio, you know, that's my uh, Freud part of it there. So, um, yeah, I, you know, you can come up with other information that can bolster that, but that part right there all is stuff that follows directly from the simplest, literally, first semester high school physics analysis of freefall. And... You got my point? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. If I, could I, can I interject? Uh, By the way, I, I want to say, I, I, I wrote an article, a series of articles in Medium. So if you go to medium.com, I basically, it's called Freefall. And it's a six-part series, okay, and that's okay. where I essentially lay out the argument I just gave you. Excuse okay. me, go ahead, Adam. Okay, yeah. Um, by the way, just to interject on that, too, I got a Medium account, so I'll just I'll follow you on there. Um, Going back to yesterday's uh, lawyers committee meeting, yeah. um, 
Dave, David Mieswinkel actually brought up the statement regarding um, an anonymous source that's going to come out, uh, I think by next year, he states, that there were white trucks coming in in the late evenings of the World Trade Center um, weeks uh, to before 9-11. Now, Susan Lindau also speaks upon this issue. Um, she makes a statement, I think, three or four years prior, um, stating that, yes, there were these white bands that came, and she's going by uh, an anonymous source as well, that there, there were people that were seeing who didn't even work there. Uh, they didn't have any tags or whatnot. But okay. Meisweeker also repeats that as well. So if I'll, I'll leave it up to you. How many floors would need to be compromised in the World Trade Center? Would it be a couple of floors? Would it have been all floors? And what areas of the World Trade Center would have to have been compromised for it to completely collapse? Okay. I've had conversations on that topic with Tony. And uh, basically, I think the core columns were um, laced from top to bottom. And then the other thing that he points out is in order to destabilize the walls, you had to take out the corners. So if you can, in other words, where the walls meet at right angles, you have extra strength there, okay? And so to get the walls to just sort of fall apart, you needed to rip them at the corners. So I don't know how often, but uh, so those are some of the main things. But then you see all these little other uh, squibs and stuff going off in the center which could be stuff happening at the, the core area somehow, but it seems awfully focused to come out just like one little point. So there are probably, on my view is, if you had things that are right in the, in the floor spacing, you know, between the, the floors of something in, in the, the, those are the kinds of explosions we might be seeing as squibs and who knows. And a lot of the, so I don't know, I mean, we, I don't As you've mentioned squibs, David, I feel it's incumbent upon me to ask that you, like, how how have you determined that they're not um, air pressure escaping? Because one thing that I, I thought it was right. ridiculously coincidental that squibs would look like air pressure, okay? And for, like the, you know, so um, that there would be these two separate phenomena that would visually appear the same way. But then in, um, in watching the documentary Miracle on Stairwell B, uh, which talks about the firefighters who were trapped inside the building uh, when it came down and survived, they do talk about this tremendous rush of air that is pushed down uh, past them and blew them down several... During the collapse uh, itself, you're saying? During the collapse itself, yeah. Okay. Can I just comment on that? Yeah, please. Uh, the big... All right. The whole idea that those little point squibs are air pressure is not tenable. Because uh, if you, in order to have air pressure uh, focused and it's going to break out an individual window, those windows I'm sure were very strong windows because you have a lot of liability if somebody falls out by breaking, mm -hmm. falls against a window and they fall out onto the street. Yeah. yeah. So they're going to be very strong windows. And in order to get the air pressure in a room that's an acre in size, uh, you're talking about a lot of air pressure, and you have to have it like a like a sealed chamber in order to hold the pressure. That pressure is going to leak out anywhere it can. And what you see when you see, like in my one of my early videos, it says North Tower coming down. You can see uh, stuff being blown out the sides, 
at multiple levels uh, all at once. So you see stuff way down the building already being blown out, large sections of it. And then up above, where that earlier wave of stuff had already passed by, you see these squibs. Well, if you've already blown out a section of a floor or windows or walls or whatever the stuff is, you don't have any compression to build up the air pressure to produce that. And they say, well, maybe it's in the air conditioning ducts. You're gonna say that the sheet metal in an air conditioning duct is able to hold on to that pressure better than a window can reduce, you know, those windows are very strong. There's no way you could produce enough air pressure in a sheet metal air conditioning duct that's going to then blow out a window. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, that whole air conditioning, no, that whole um, air pressure thing is grasping at straws and it, it doesn't hold together if you give a few minutes thought to it. So, and the other thing, why would it come out just one window in the center of the building when if there's air pressure in the whole floor, you know, maybe you could blow out all the windows simultaneously if that were happening, which it's not. And so this is a different mechanism entirely. Plus you can see up close. There's one video that actually potentially is not clear, but actually shows a person being blown out with one of these squibs. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that video you're talking about. I, I, although I, I, I don't know if it was a person or not, but- It's but hard to tell. Yeah, there's two people actually compensating in it. And that's why I'm saying I, I don't know if that was actually a person because they probably would have saw it. I mean, they were right there filming it. I've seen that video though. Yeah. But, I, but, I, I, but there was, I, there's a book, judging uh, just to interject, there's a book actually I read uh, a while back, one of the very first books I read about 9-11, where they were saying that there were people uh, on the top floors who couldn't see because the smoke was so dense that they actually could see like a, 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 like a light and they were going toward the light, but what they were doing is they were going out the exit window and they were falling. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of people that were actually not, it wasn't that they, they, there was jumpers, there were jumpers, but there was more people actually uh, escaping through the windows because they, didn't, they couldn't see where they were going and they were, they were falling out. And that's why there was a lot, there's a lot of um, testimony regarding people that were on the ground saying that there were, there were people like coming out four or five at a time. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. That's not in my area of expertise. But it's something I've definitely, you know, I've been all over, all over this territory too. And so, yeah, I've wondered, all of, are all those jumpers jumpers or were some of them blown out the sides, right. you know? Right. Or like what you're saying, I hadn't heard that before of just being blinded and walking out inadvertently. So I don't know. But the, I would have thought they could see a whole wall of windows, even though, anyway, I don't know. So interesting prospects so but it's a right. it's a question of why did people jump out of these things well maybe it's a way of they were just saying well i'd rather die that way than this way or something like that i don't know yeah there's a documentary called the jumping uh the falling the falling man okay um and they talked about the the infamous where you can see the picture of the guy wearing a yellow jacket he's upside down yeah and somebody took a picture and looked like he was very calm 
because you could see his leg bent in and he was like, and yeah. they were asking why, why do you think these people actually did this? And th one of the family members said um, regarding her son that, that jumped, she says that, that it gave him a sense of a choice. Like it was his, even though he was, he knew he was going to die, but he was going to choose in which matter he was going to die. And I think yeah. pretty much That's speculation. Uh, right, right. I'm um, just pretty much, would you have rather burnt or would you rather have been exhumed by smoke, which would a horrible death, or jump and, you know, give yourself a little bit of, of free will in regard to what manner you would rather die? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's tough itself. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these people uh, actually were blown out, too, by whatever explosion or by a force of wind or whatever. But I, I, I just, I mean, we are speculating at, at this point. So I want to raise something. Sure. Okay. One of my complaints about a lot of this debunker community is they'll focus on one tiny thing and sort of a gotcha on that one thing. This is going to prove or disprove the whole case, right? I mean, there's no just one thing. This is a very elaborate, complicated set of phenomena we're looking at. But um, so that, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you have to basically look beyond just, you know, there's lots of puzzles. And just because you might be stumped by one particular little puzzle, there's a, bit, there's a broad uh, pattern of what's going on here. All right. There's, there's also, I'm going to make this other comment, which is uh, there is a piece of evidence that came out at one point and then has been pretty effectively dissipated. But the idea of bone fragments on the tops of yeah. other buildings, think about that. In other words, what does it take in the first place to create bone fragments that are centimeter-sized bone fragments? I mean, that takes a high explosive. I mean, you're gonna, sh you're gonna shred a person, you know, who has all this flesh and tendons and everything holding their body together, and you're gonna get the fragments of their bones and shattered down to the centimeter size. That's not gonna be something that would happen in a fireball. So they're saying, oh, it was airplane passengers in the fireball. No, fireballs don't act like high explosives. So you had to shred these people with intense, uh, shock waves to shatter the bones and disassociate the bones from the rest of the body and basically liberate these fragments and then in the same time be able to eject them across the street and land on roofs of other buildings and this had to happen high in early in the collapse so here you have somebody from early in the collapse high enough that anything ejected would land on top of one of these other buildings. And they've already been fragmented. And it's not like they've been crushed. If they were crushed, they'd be at the, in the rubble at the bottom of the building. So they were exploded and thrown out early in this whole process. And the very existence of these bone fragments on the roofs of these buildings says all of that about the nature of the event. It was an explosive, a highly explosive event that started very high in the building 
And from the very beginning, it was just fragmenting everything, including people all the way down to bones and all the way down to creating bone fragments. It's just amazing that that could happen. And then that's not the front page news. I mean, and then they, they just sort of wave their hands and say, oh, these, you know, they were, I don't know. I saw some comment that there was some evidence that some of those fragments came from firefighters, which means it had to have been from the, the building demolitions, not from the airplane. So, but all of that kind of stuff gets covered over, but the airplane explanation isn't plausible because bodies recovered from airplane crashes are not, you know, centimeter-sized bone fragments like that. Um, I don't know. I just, you know, it's just one thing after another after another. It all piles up. So there is a coherent way to explain this. And then there's all these incoherent little bits, you know, trying to pick holes in it so that you can dismiss the whole thing because you can't explain this one item. So that's where I'm coming from. So a lot of this stuff. I, all right, another item like this. I taught uh, for a number of years at a charter school that worked with homeschoolers. And so there's a lot of parents on campus all the time. We give a little, uh, you know, class. I gave math classes that the parents weren't able to handle on their own and things like that. But there was this one father of a, one of the kids who was, uh, he was actually in the reserves, but he was expecting at any day to get called back into the military. But he was in demolitions. But uh, he was, um, very conservative Republican. I really didn't talk to him much because we were so different, but I sort of got friendly with him a little bit. And, and he was asking me, I don't know if, if he asked or I said something, but I knew that he sort of disapproved of my looking at 9-11. So I said, have you ever, have you ever really looked at the buildings coming down for yourself? And he said, not really. So I said, come here. I took him into my office and closed the door. And if you've seen my loop, it's called North Tower Exploding, I think. It just shows an infinite loop of showing the corner of the building as it comes down. And then I'm commenting about this. Notice this, notice that, notice this. Okay. Well, he didn't pay attention to any of my commentary. But he saw the building coming down. And it was coming down repeatedly like that. After about the third time, uh, the third loop, he said, that's a demolition. I mean, he went... 180 degrees from where he was five minutes earlier. And he just said, that's a demolition. And I said, what caused you to switch your belief so quickly? And he just pointed to one thing, which was, you see these beams being thrown out. And if you look at that video, you'll see all kinds of examples of this. So here is this beam being thrown out and, on the, and all across the whole length of the beam, it's just like bubbling off of this is all of this profuse white smoke coming off of this. And it's just like it's, it's like it's on fire. But this is a steel beam. But it's just, just billowing white smoke from this being, thing being thrown. And he said, that's characteristic of demolition. Boom. He was convinced. And he's convinced to this day. So he's, that's, that's all it took for him to realize this was a demolition. And he was the one that basically said, I was talking about demolition companies and all that. And he just laughed at me and said, you know, the, the best, ex, best 
demolition expertise in the world is the U.S. Army. I mean, that was the way he put it. I'm sure other armies as well are equally or comparably. Sure. I mean, I'm not trying to put down our army. I'm just saying I'm sure other <laughs> military organizations have comparable expertise as well. It but, is an amazing phenomenon. I've met, I don't know how many people now whose lives have changed forever in a moment of seeing, particularly Building 7, mm-hmm. come down. I, I remember meeting a fellow at a, a lecture in London um, who described to me how he had a completely conventional worldview, uh, just believed what was on the BBC until he saw Building 7 come down. And that just, that was down the rabbit hole, where in Wonderland, nothing makes sense anymore. And then he had to build his life back up in a different way. Uh, so it's, it has this immense psychological effect on people. Of, you know, this red pill yeah. moment, I suppose. Well, you asked me and I didn't answer it way back at the beginning. You said, what was my first thought when I saw Building mm-hmm. 7 come down? My thought was, it looks like here's this building just sinking into the ground. I mean, that was just my, I wasn't thinking demolition. I was saying, whoa, it's like there's an elevator it's taking this whole thing down into the ground. Yeah. But it was, it was so stark and it was like, I, I didn't even, for a while, I didn't even associate that with the way the buildings came down. There, people say that's all the same, but there's, it's so different because it was, uh, it was this, uh, just the collapse of the whole structure intact all the visible part, which is only the, like the top half or so of the building. There's a lot of, it's a lot taller than it appears there. Anyway, um, thought I'd throw that in. Okay. Um, Adam, any sort of final thoughts or questions from yourself? I think I've exhausted uh, mine at this point. We'll probably, so anything more for you, from yourself? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, Richard, I mean, David, why, why do you think, the the predominant conversation regarding 9-11 has been physics rather than say the geopolitical because coming from my experience when i first started in 2006 and i i went with you before in our previous conversation that i saw so many people talking about the physics that's what led me to the geopolitical anyway because i said you know if i were to jump into physics it would really just you know, be useless because it was much more qualified people talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it seemed like it went right, like very early on in 9-11. Like, I, I, I guess the first inclination regarding investigation were coming from like the Jersey Bill. They were basically delving into geopolitical, even though they were instituting a little bit regarding how the, the buildings fell. But then after that, I'd say between 2000 and say three and then onward, the predominant conversation has been physics. Is it because that it's much more concentrated and easier to explain to the public? Or, or is it that the geopolitical is just too expansive and maybe more threatening to the public itself? What, what's your take on that? Well, I keep, okay, I'm going to do the physics of it because that's who I am, you know? Right. And I recognize that uh, that's not who you are. So I don't have a problem with that. The point is that I think there were a sufficient number of, uh, you know, the architects and engineers got off the ground and organized and gave a, it gave a focus where people could sign up on this thing and start working together. And it's, you know, there is sort of a core group within the, the thousands of engineers and stuff they've got, but there's a core group who's doing the real heavy duty uh, research on there, and there's a lot of onlookers. But uh, 
that was one area where it seems like the statements that were being made about the buildings, people said, how did that happen? Well, uh, scientists and engineers look at that and they say, well, I have some insights into what's going on here. And so they have, a, they have a, an approach to this question that, um, and then it became dominant because it's such a persuade, I think it's a very persuasive approach. And if you look at all the debunking that's gone on, it's such a haphazard, you know, there's not a coherent body of, uh, you know, scientists and so forth supporting the official story. It's just little people, there's people picking at this and that around the edges. The, the, our side has the coherent uh, narrative on this subject. So it, it just became a successful narrative, which has socio-political you know, socio implications, like I've tried to illustrate, and there's nothing to prevent others from coming out. There's others that do, you know, there's that whole, you know, global research has a bunch of people that are looking at, you know, they're looking at insider trading, they're looking at uh, various other aspects of this, and it's, you know, there's lots of valid work to be done. Look at Graham McQueen, he's not a scientist, he's a theologian, or, a, you know, he's a religion professor, but uh, look at what he's done on this. And, uh, you know, he, but that, there's, there's another point here, by the way. Uh, I think there's something about the American educational system that dismisses science and math, oh, that's just for brainiacs or something. If you go to Europe, like I taught, I taught at an international school for a few years in India, and the students who were there from Germany and all the rest, every single German university student, no matter if they're major in poetry or what, they had to take calculus, you know? Well, they had, and so this kid that I had, who was very weak in math and all that, I had to get him ready to be able to transfer back into a European university. So there is a different level of um, expectation in the general public that they'd be literate in science and math and so forth. And I think that's lacking here. Uh, there's sort of an anti-intellectual uh, flavor. I think it's sort of paradoxical because American technology and so forth is sort of revered, but we're sort of losing it in a lot of grounds. But it's seen as that's sort of a, a fringe thing for just, you know, guys like me, you can do science and all that, but don't just leave us alone. So I don't know. I would, you know, if you were a European uh, non-scientist, not engineer, there's a more of a tendency for them to at least have the, the fundamentals of this stuff uh, that they've been exposed to. So that's, that's an issue as well. So I don't know, it's a, there's all kinds of stuff that come in here. Okay, well, we'd love to have you back to talk about your Pentagon research at some point and maybe okay. debunking from the opposite angle, whereas rather than dismissing things, accentuating them mm -hmm. as a way of covering up. I think that's, that's something that's um, of great interest. Okay, if you, if you were to strategically try and cover an event up, do you do that by... Um, that again, I didn't miss, I missed that last sentence. If you were plotting how to strategically cover an event up, would you do so by 
saying, oh, people like David Chandler, they've got it all wrong and they're, they're not good at physics? Or would you say, yes, not only are they right, but it was directed energy weapons from outer space? You know, there's, there's two ways to cover an event up, one by dismissing it and one by accentuating it. So I think that, that's an interesting thing that, like, the, the Pentagon is almost like you're encountering the, um, the opposite form of opposition. The underside like. of the movement. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, okay, you don't want to get me going on the Pentagon right here. Well, but I, the main re- I just want to say this. The main reason I have come to put energy into the Pentagon is in defense of the good work we've done at the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. The Pentagon is one humongous distraction from where our solid evidence is. We got it nailed at the World Trade Center, and they want us to uh, go off with fringe theory stuff on the Pentagon. And it's important for credibility. It's important just for integrity that you look at the evidence for what it is and you actually pay attention to evidence. And uh, some of the time it's going to go one direction and some of the time it's going to go another. I think there are elements of the Pentagon official story that are not true. And there's elements of the Pentagon official story that are true. Planes hit the World Trade Center, a plane hit the Pentagon. I don't see where there's anything uh, heretical about that. So anyway, but that's, that's a different topic. And it's not something, so my focus on that is there is, uh, there is an element of the truth movement that is uh, turned into a cult. I'll say the word. And it's, they behave like a cult. And that's something that I think is damaging to the truth movement. And I'm not there. I'm not into a cult. I'm for uh, looking at the evidence and following the evidence where it leads. So um, you've seen that I, you know, I don't, I don't have sort of a flaky approach to this. I'm pretty solid, I think, on, on the World Trade Center and the way that people uh, dismiss me as being flaky just because all of a sudden I'm contradicting their pet theories. Uh, sort of bizarre. Okay. So I think if you can take me seriously, take me seriously and let's have a conversation. But don't come back and try to smear me because I've revealed something that contradicts what you believe ahead of time. Okay. So that's my approach to it. But could, could I interject just a little bit? Yeah. Um, in, you, you've been in numerous conversations and discussions. Are you, in my, from my experience, there's been a lack of almost a, a rational discourse between the truthers or debunkers, let's just say. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted, me and Richard, we wanted you to have this platform to speak. And I think... Mm-hmm. And from my opinion, it is basically lacking any type of um, a non-prejudicial, non-biased type of discussion. Whereas I, I, I know nothing. That's why I take no position. But I'm, I want you to speak your issue mm-hmm. um, just like I, if I were to speak to somebody on an opposing term. But do you think that this is a problem that will... Is it a problem in itself, uh, in your position, regarding a, a serious lack of discussion regarding either physics or geopolitics of, of 9-11? Uh, 
Well, number one, it's not going to become a friendly conversation because look at the motives of people involved. There are people who absolutely do not want us to get traction. If what we're saying got traction, if what we are saying gets traction, the whole thing is going to be a lot nastier in the end. There's going to be a lot more stuff going on. How come we could, we're out, hey, I'm out here just talking and I'm not really afraid that I'm going to get bombed tonight or something like that. But I mean, uh, so as long as we're sufficiently on the fringes of things, maybe that's partly why we've been as successful as we have at being able to uh, speak. But uh, there's, some, there's some bad stuff out there and they're not going to back off and have a rational conversation. They're gonna put up people, and I, if I start naming names, then all of a sudden I get in trouble, you know? But I mean, there's people that you know and I know that I'm absolutely persuaded they are uh, their agents. And some of them, I mean, I have good solid reasons to believe some of them are agents. And um, anyway, so it's like, and when you're dealing with somebody who has an agenda like that, it's not a rational conversation. It's like, uh, I'm being straightforward about what I see and about my analysis and all that kind of thing. And then when somebody comes back with all these manufactured arguments and you know that that guy, that, that guy's not on his own. They're, they're being supported by a team of people that are handing them talking points and stuff like that. That's what it sounds like. That's what it, that's what it is like. And, um, uh, so, you know, from my perspective, I have very solid opinions about certain people. There's some people out there who are probably just crazy, all right? Being crazy doesn't mean you're not an agent, though. <laughs> There's a potential for overlap. But I mean, so are they crazy? Are they agents? Or are they sincere individuals with alternate theories? Well, the people in that last category, you can tell because you can have a conversation with them and there's going to be flexibility and there's going to be give and take but when there's somebody who you cannot you know you can't prevail on a single point in a whole evenings of conversation with somebody and every single thing is just so defensive and so uh you know trying to uh i don't know it's it you can there's a there's a there's a nature to the conversation where there's a difference like hey you brought up all of these arguments that originate from some of these debunkers today. I enjoyed having the chance to respond to them because they're being presented and I'm having a chance to, uh, to come back and give my perspective. Uh, if I were talking directly or having a debate or something like that directly with some of these guys, I wouldn't be able to get half of my sentences completed. You know, it would be a different experience entirely. It would be a combat situation rather than a conversation. So I, I don't mind getting the questions and having a chance to actually, um, uh, you know, think about them and talk about them and so forth. That's, that's legitimate. But you can tell when you're involved in that, when you're talking to somebody who is not going to be moved because that's not their agenda, you know? So, and look at it this way could it be any other way look at what we're look at the subject matter we're talking about do you yeah. think they're going to leave us to just have a 
an intellectual discussion of all this without uh, getting the everything all turbulent and everything. No, it's going to be stirred up no matter what we do. So I don't have a sense that all these debunkers are going to get converted because they're not out there to have a, a rational conversation. They're out there to try to destroy our movement. Anyway. Okay. Well, I thank you, you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've been going for quite some time as regards making this into a podcast. So I don't know if you have yeah, for the thought. Two hours in the next quarter there. Okay. Wrap this up and um, hopefully speak to David again. So anything more before we do wrap up, Adam? Or you... No, I, I'm I'm pretty I'm I love it so far. So yeah. I think that's good. Great. Okay. Well, I hope this has been enlightening. Oh, I let me know. let me put in plug nine eleven speakout dot org. Or everything David mentioned uh, will be linked to below. Um, his own okay. website at the top of that. It's okay. a and I will link also to the articles um, where I drew my information uh, from the questioning on, so you can find the questions in their in their proper form. I apologise for my limitations in putting them across. Hope we did an okay job. I've no doubt the criticisms are coming. So thank you very much, um, David. It's been really uh, fascinating, enlightening period, and um, okay. yeah, hope to have you on again. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs>